This is The Invisible Line, where history meets the present, and together, we shape the future. The Great Depression, caused by the stock market crash of 1929, was a rough time for everyone. But for African Americans, it was even tougher. On top of the economic chaos, African Americans faced even more difficulties because of the prevailing systemic racism and discriminatory policies that restricted their economic prospects. Due to discriminatory hiring practices, high levels of unemployment, and the collapse of industries that employed them, many African American families struggled to make ends meet. With jobs becoming scarce, they had to compete with others and were often the first ones to be laid off. Living in the cities wasn't a walk in the park either. Crowded poor conditions were the norm. The scarcity of job opportunities and widespread poverty led to an increase in homelessness and social problems. In rural areas, African-American farmers and sharecroppers suffered as agricultural prices dropped, which resulted in many losing their land and falling into poverty. Before the Depression, most African-Americans were in low-skilled jobs. But post-1929, those jobs disappeared or got snatched up by white folk desperate for work. The Library of Congress says African-American unemployment rose to 50% in 1932. Cheryl Lynn Greenbook's book, To Ask for an Equal Chance, points out that in the South, black unemployment rates were two to three times higher than for white folks. Atlanta was hit hard, with almost 70% of black workers jobless in 1934. In northern cities, while approximately 25% of white workers were unemployed in 1932, the jobless rates among African Americans exceeded 50% in Chicago and Pittsburgh, and 60% in Philadelphia and Detroit. Then came the New Deal, a collection of initiatives and reforms launched by President Roosevelt to tackle the economic crisis that arose during the Great Depression. The primary objective of this plan was to offer relief, recovery, and reform to the American public, to stabilize the economy, and aid those who were most adversely affected by the Depression. The New Deal had a mixed economic impact on African Americans. Although some of its programs, such as the Civilian Conservation Corps and the Works Progress Administration, provided employment opportunities for a few African Americans, many were left out of these initiatives due to the racial discrimination and hiring practices. As a result, the benefits of the New Deal were not equally distributed among the African-American community, thereby reinforcing the existing social and economic inequalities. The establishment of Social Security was a significant aspect of the New Deal. However, the initial exclusion of agricultural and domestic workers, who are mainly African-American, from Social Security benefits brought to light the racial inequalities in the implementation of New Deal policies. To address the housing shortage during the 1930s, the U.S. government launched a program called the Federal Housing Administration, FHA. The program 
primarily designed suburban housing for white and middle-class families, while African Americans and other people of color were excluded and pushed into urban projects and segregated neighborhoods. The FHA played a role in denying insurance for homes in African American communities, a practice known as redlining. The term redlining refers to the practice of creating maps of metropolitan areas by the federal government during the New Deal era. The Homeowners Loan Corps, Federal Housing Administration, and Veterans Administration color-coded these maps to indicate safe areas to insure mortgages. Neighborhoods inhabited by African Americans or those in close proximity were marked in red to alert appraisers that these areas were too risky to insure mortgages. According to the underwriting manual of the FHA, loans could not be insured for African Americans as incompatible racial groups should not be permitted to live in the same communities. The FHA believed that insuring homes owned by African Americans in certain suburbs or even in close proximity to those suburbs would lead to the decline in property values of the white homes they were insuring. This decline would put their loans at risk and so they chose not to insure these homes. The claim made by the FHA that African Americans caused a decrease in property values when they tried to buy homes in all white or mostly white neighborhoods had no basis. In fact, the opposite was true. When African Americans tried to purchase homes in such neighborhoods, property values actually increased. This was because African Americans had fewer choices and were willing to pay more for the properties. The rationale used by the FHA was not based on any study or reality. During World War II, in a development project in Detroit, the FHA refused to proceed unless the developer built a six-foot-high cement wall that separated the development from an African-American neighborhood nearby. The purpose of the wall was to ensure that no African-Americans could enter the neighborhood. The underwriting manual of the FHA suggested that highways could be used to segregate black and white neighborhoods. This was not a matter of law, but a matter of government regulation. However, it was not hidden, so it cannot be claimed that this was a de facto situation. Regulations written in law and published in the underwriting manual are just as unconstitutional as something written in law, as they both expressed government policy. In his book called The Color of Law, Rothstein analyzes the housing policies at the local, state, and federal levels that enforce segregation. He highlights that the FHA contributed to segregation efforts by denying mortgage insurance for properties in and around black communities. Meanwhile, the FHA was providing subsidies to builders who were constructing entire neighborhoods just for white families with the condition that none of the homes be sold to African Americans. These housing policies that were in place for decades have had a long-lasting impact on American society and current segregation of our metropolitan areas, leading to stagnant inequality. Families living in segregated neighborhoods have less opportunity to be upwardly mobile. In order to promote greater equality in our society, we need to take steps to desegregate.
Because of the FHA policy, African-American families were not allowed to buy homes in the suburbs in the 40s, 50s, or even the 60s. As a result, they did not gain any of the equity appreciation that white families enjoyed. In the late 1940s and 50s, homes in the Daly City development south of San Francisco, Levittown, and others across the country sold for about twice the national median income. These homes were affordable to working-class families with the FHA, or VA mortgage. African Americans were equally able to afford these homes as white people, but they were prohibited from buying them. Today, these homes sell for a minimum of $1 million, which is 13 times the national median income. Public housing also began in the United States during the New Deal as an attempt to address a housing shortage, not a welfare program for poor people. During the Great Depression, housing construction was at a standstill, leading to many middle-class and working-class white families to lose their home due to unemployment. Therefore, the federal government began a program of building public housing for whites only in cities across the country. Although some African-American projects were built, they were always separate and never integrated. The liberal instincts of some Roosevelt administration officials led them to build these projects for minorities as well. The white housing projects had a lot of open spots available for people to live in, while the black housing projects had a long waiting list. The problem became so obvious that the government decided to open up the white designated projects to African Americans. As a result, the African Americans moved in and the white families moved out. At the same time, industry was leaving the cities and African Americans were becoming poorer in those areas. As a result, the projects became housing for poor people rather than for working class people. They became subsidized, which was not the case before, and this led to the creation of vertical slums that became associated with public housing. The vacancies in the white projects were primarily created by the FHA program to suburbanize America. The FHA provided subsidies to mass production builders to create subdivisions that were white only and also subsidized the families who were living in the white housing projects as well as whites who were living elsewhere in the central city to move out of the central cities and into these white only suburbs. So it was the FHA that depopulated public housing of white families while the public housing authorities were tasked with the responsibility of housing blacks who were increasingly too poor to pay the full cost of their rent. In 1968, the Fair Housing Act was passed, which allowed African Americans to purchase homes in suburbs like Daly City or Levittown. However, this promise was meaningless as the homes were no longer affordable to the minorities who could have afforded them initially when white families were buying them and building equity and wealth from them. White families were able to send their children to college with the equity from their homes, take care of their parents in old age, and pass on wealth to their children. Unfortunately, blacks were not able to take advantage of these opportunities, as they were mostly prohibited from buying homes in those suburbs. The FHA's role in creating African-American ghettos is a dark chapter in American history. The FHA's role in creating African-American ghettos is a dark chapter in American history. By understanding this history, 
we can better appreciate the challenges faced by African Americans and the ongoing struggle for fair and equitable housing.